0: You are now listening to the Why Is It Like That podcast, a mental health podcast where we discuss the crippling effects and stories of PTSD, anxiety, depression, and suicide. The views and opinions of our guests are not our own, but merely their side of the story related to trauma, addiction, and mental health. We are real, raw, and uncut. The stories you hear are not easy to hear. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Trey Trevino, alongside your other host, Heath Garcia. We both suffer from PTSD, anxiety, and depression, just like you. Together, we have over 30 years experience in the United States Navy and have seen first-hand effects of mental health on our society and ask the question, why is it like that? We share your stories to provide freedom and comfort to the people of this world, that there is hope, that there is peace, and that we will all be okay. But first, I'd like to start by taking a moment of silence for the ones we've lost in this mind battle, to our military that we have lost, and to the soldiers, sailors, marines, coasties, and airmen that are deployed in harm's way, away from their families, missing their child being born, birthdays, anniversaries, and even deaths of loved ones. Not what y'all been waiting for. The Why Is It Like That podcast. Let's get it! Today we're interviewing Amy Doremus. She's a licensed clinical psychologist practicing out of Urban Balance in Chicago, Illinois. Um, She does... Some deep stuff with uh, mental health. I'm reading her bio on uh, audiotherapy.com. She describes that a lot of therapists only use uh, one type of treatment. They only do uh, neurofeedback and only cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, But for people with serious mental illnesses, they can result in a lot of therapists hopping when that one type of treatment doesn't work. So instead, she says she can offer several options for treatment and together you can decide what works best. And I think that's an amazing options. So um, well, welcome you to the show, Amy. Why is it like that? Um, We're great. We're happy to have uh, this is the first time we have a psychologist on the show. So it's a good insight for our listeners to actually get to know, you know, how a psychologist thinks if they've never been there, if they've never seen one or they're kind of hesitant to reach out. So.
1: Sure. Well, Trey pretty much said it. I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice and I'm trying to kind of find the best balance between using really good evidence-based practices and including the person in choosing their own therapy. So I usually try to have a few different options available. Um, you know, biofeedback, cognitive behavioral, interpersonal, um, just as a few. So that lets people participate in their own therapy. We try, we see what works. And if something doesn't work, they don't have to switch to a therapist who uses a different style. We can just adjust our style.
2: Good afternoon, Amy. <clears throat> Um, It's a, it's a pleasure to again, have you on the show. Um, It's always, you know, it's always good hearing information being passed over to people that, you know, have things going on such as ourselves that are similar, but to have the, the, I guess, should I say the licensed opinion, you know what I mean? And factual fact-based studies that you, that you have under your belt as a psychologist It's really going to say something to the to the viewers or those that are listening that need help, you know. So I want to thank you for that, to to sitting here on the show and reaching out. Um, So I just I'll start out with we'll just go right into it, you know what I mean, and and throw that first question out there. Um, So since you've been working in the field uh, for some time, there definitely is a passion, obviously, for helping others. Uh, Obviously, you wouldn't do it if you didn't. Um, So what brought you to pursue uh, that, you know, pursue that?
1: Well, uh, it honestly didn't start in any really, really deep kind of way, I have to admit. I just kind of got hooked on my first psychology class. You know, it was interesting. It was exciting. And, you know, I took a few more classes and, you know, the abnormal, what they call abnormal psychology, which is probably a terrible term for it, um, but the specific study of mental illness really caught me. And it kind of started out as more of an intellectual passion pattern, you know, an intellectual passion, I mean, and something exciting. But that was when I was very young. And soon after that, I got my first sort of undergraduate internship in the field and actually got to meet clients, work with clients, and I really, really enjoyed them. And that was at a facility for um, violent criminal offenders who had some kind of a disability, so they couldn't go into the prison population. And so I was like, oh, I really actually like this. I'm enjoying this, and I'm enjoying the people I work with.
2: Okay, awesome. Um, and what is your approach to therapy? I know we talked just briefly about it. You kind of mentioned it's like, diff- you know, you have different structural bases where um, you have the tools, they get to pick them pretty much. That's what I like to, how do I like to say that? Um, how does that compare to other therapy options out there? And I know you said that, you know, we obviously talked about uh, CPT by itself or other ones, just kind of a one pronged effect. Um, how do you differ from that?
1: Well, there are a few different evidence-based practices for any given problem, like PTSD. Um, there's EMDR, which is good. There's CBT. Um, there are a lot of sort of trauma-informed approaches where a regular style of therapy can be adjusted to be better for somebody with a trauma history. Um, you know, depression, there's also interpersonal therapy. Um, with anxiety, there's a lot of different forms of meditation and relaxation, as well as just um, kind of the standard cognitive behavioral approaches. And then um, there are kind of the psychodynamic approaches, which are the ones that are more likely to get into your family background, get into maybe what happened as a kid or the quality of your relationships and see if the problem is there. And then kind of more recently, there is a trend that I think is going to do a lot of good, which is looking at the environment the person is in. Uh, even when a person's really depressed or really anxious, we have to consider. They might may not be the one that has something wrong with them. It might be that they're in a toxic environment. And a lot of therapy could actually focus on helping them to change that, like transitioning out of a toxic job. Um I sort of that's, said that's some good yeah, stuff
0: right there. It can yeah. walk
1: like depression, it can talk like depression, it can be wearing a t-shirt that says, hi, I'm depressed, and it can still be a toxic work environment. And a lot of the problem disappears when you get someplace that's healthier for you.
0: I like that approach. I haven't heard of that before. It's always been based on that person itself, not their environment. It's usually, oh, it's you. It's not everything going on around you. I like that. I like that. So you just mentioned right now that you have heard of EMDR and Heath is a big fan of EMDR himself. Um, So what benefit have you seen with it, with PTSD?
1: Like a lot of other therapies, it gives a person kind of a safe space to look at that trauma And ER, EMDR, I think, focuses a lot on helping them kind of bring down the fight or flight, bring bring themselves out of that state of anxiety by kind of distracting them while they're talking about the trauma that they've experienced so that uh, through that, they start to be able to talk about things and to think about things and feel calm at the same time. Mm. So it's really changing the way their entire body reacts that the fighter, that you can do. think about these things and talk about these things without your fight or flight system going wild.
2: Well, it's kind of funny you say that and because I, I got done with my inpatient uh, treatment program and um, it's a program called strong hope and it's over in uh, Salt Lake city, Utah. Probably. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. I don't think um, so. Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, it was, it was, it was actually really good. I I, I took a lot out of it and um, I just wanted to share my experience with you on EMDR, maybe, at you least. know help you but they have they had different variations
0: also just for the listeners today is actually national mental health day the world mental health day is observed on the 10th of october every year with the overall objective of raising awareness of mental health issues around the world and mobilizing efforts and support of mental health so happy national mental health day so, Heath, uh, we're mentioning EMDR. Could you tell me what it stands for for the listeners out there?
2: Yeah, it's Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy, or it's a psychotherapy treatment. Um, it was originally designed uh, to alleviate and dis- the distress with traumatic memories. Um, now, from my experience, Dr., I had different things going on. So they had different variations. You could do the light bar, which is you stare at the laser or the lights and they travel in a certain pattern. You follow them with your eyes, keeping your head still, and you pretty much tell your, you know, you, you recount your trauma and it goes through that. And then there was the ones that I used, which was paddles, and it's an actual where you hold them in your hands. It's a uh, vibration um, that goes back and forth and you kind of key in on that with your eyes closed. And then they had the finger, uh, version too, where they can move their fingers, same principle as the other, as the light bar. Right. Um, and I've, I actually, when I was in the session, some of my traumas, I actually smelled some of the smells I smelled. I smelled the gunpowder. I, I, you know what I mean? I, I felt the cold. Um,
1: it felt very real in ways like you were there again.
2: Right. right. And when I asked about, you know, why I was feeling like that and please correct me if I'm wrong, because like I said, you, you know, a lot more you, about the studies and things. Um, but they said it's pretty much when trauma is processed, it really ain't processed. You, you kind of do the, the flight fight or freeze thing with the amygdala. Cause that takes over in those type of moments. And, you never your your frontal cortex of your brain never gets to actually process the trauma and, and put it away. It's like packing it and put it away. So you're, you you kind of remind you know you remember it, but it's not sticking out like a sore thumb. Right. Um, so that EMDR process generates what they said is like REM sleep because your eye movement pattern is the same as if you were in a REM sleep uh, REM sleep state of mind. Um, And that is actually what helps process in the frontal cortex that trauma that you're reliving. Is that true?
1: Um, That's what I've heard, which I've always wondered. I would love to kind of pick apart exactly how that works some more sometime because, I mean, a lot of people who have trauma have nightmares and the nightmares don't seem to fix anything. So it's always interesting to me how the similarities to REM sleep actually seem to heal in one circumstance, but you're in REM sleep and you're having nightmares as a symptom of, of drama in another.
2: Yeah, that's pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, another thing I'd like to pay, point out too is a lot of, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe you can elaborate on your program because you might have a different system, but a lot of, uh, you know, uh, psychologists that I've been to their appointment time obviously is like an hour and you go in there, you sit down and, and to me, um, if you start EMDR, I mean, every one of my sessions in Stronghold because it was an inpatient program. I kid you not, my longest EMDR session was three and a half hours. I believe it. And they ramp you up because you get to the state of mind to where everything feels like you're reliving it, but they also bring you back down. And mm-hmm. I hear that that is a constant issue with some of the guys I talk to that go through it. They say, yeah, and, you know, they they dig into this stuff, and then they're like, oh, we're done on time you know come right. back later and now i'm stuck in this state to you know what i mean so is there any advice that you can give somebody that, um as a psychologist is do you in your practice do more than an hour long appointment or is there a way a certain way to talk to a a psychologist to get those kind of extra time slots or you know what i mean or
1: yeah i mean like for one thing i mean i i do the traditional kind of one hour appointment and i'll explain why in a second um but I mean, it's a catch-22. I don't want a client walking out of my office you know, in that state, um, but that also means I get almost no working time with them. We don't get to process for very long if we're going to take the time to kind of bring somebody back down by the time they walk out. But a lot of that, honestly, is in the hands of the insurance companies. The only way I could do much longer sessions than that is if somebody was able to pay cash for them or or if I was able to get some kind of other outside funding where I could kind of do the therapy, you know, the way it would ideally be done. And yeah, there are a lot of things where longer sessions would be ideal, but insurance companies typically won't pay for more than like an hour to an hour and a half. And you can't do more than two sessions a day. So I can't just bill it as two or three sessions. Um, so that sticks to client with an enormous bill, or, you know, me running an absolutely fantastic, but failing business. And there's really, you know,
0: I understand not that. a great
1: solution right now,
0: yeah there's it's you know, I can not. only
1: be I can only survive in business so long if I'm working for three hours and getting paid for one the client- a lot of my clients definitely can't afford to pay cash for a huge amount of their therapy, so that's probably gonna be a mental health advocacy issue
0: no that's true because like me doing a hypnotherapy I did out of pocket I did out of pocket because it wouldn't there's no way the insurance is going to cover that, and it was around thirteen hundred dollars. For five sessions, that's it. Yep, I believe it. So uh, for our listeners out there that maybe feel they're potentially suffering from some symptoms of mental illness, what's your advice in them seeking treatment or when finding a particular therapist or psychologist, what are things to look for?
1: Uh, There are a few things. Um, For one thing, any really reputable therapist um, should be willing to talk to you at least on the phone for at least 15 or 20 minutes first so you two can get a sense of each other. Um, You can ask them things like where they went to school, uh, what grad school they went to, um, if they're licensed and what license they've got. Um, All of that can also be looked up on state websites. Every state has a licensing board where you can put the person's name in and see if their license is active and if they've ever had any disciplinary problems. Um, You can also ask them about their style. What styles of therapy do you do for my particular problem? Uh, you can ask them about their expertise, like how much experience do you have in this problem? Um, they will be surprised because most people don't know to ask those questions, but you know, don't be put off by that if they are you know open to answering them. It sometimes comes as a very pleasant surprise because you get somebody who knows how to ask the right questions. And then of course, completely legitimate to ask about the financial arrangements. Do they take your insurance or what their sliding fee scale might be like? But yeah, worry about a therapist who like, won't even talk to you until they're getting paid for their time. They should be willing to at least meet for a few minutes in person or on the phone. So you can get your questions answered before you come in.
2: Okay. Um, so question for you about like breathing and, and coping. exercise. you mentioned that earlier, um, that you kind of show people, you know, for anxiety, how to do certain techniques or anything. is there anything, um, is there any breathing or coping exercises that you can share with us and audience, uh, to possibly help somebody in the moment, uh, that's tuning in?
1: Sure. Um, so most people know the basic idea of relaxation breathing. You breathe as slowly and deeply as possible. Um, it can also help, and this is kind of where mindfulness comes in, to put your attention on something. Uh, with anxiety, for example, a big part of anxiety treatment can, learn, can be learning to focus your mind on something else because biologically with working memory, you can only think about so many things at once. And if you can get your attention on something else and keep it there for a while, there's actually not much room for the anxiety. And so that's part of like meditation for anxiety. Now with someone with trauma, sometimes meditation has to be adjusted a little bit because, you know, mindfulness in particular has a lot of benefits. They're very well proven in the research, but There are risks. Like sometimes people find that mindfulness actually brings back flashbacks or memories um, or really intrusive thoughts. So, people with trauma, for example, can do the standard meditations, but it might be a good idea to do them for only, say, five minutes at a time and then kind of push the boundaries of how long you can do it, but then kind of pull back if the intrusive thoughts or memories start getting overwhelming. Uh, You might want to pay attention to your body because as you noted earlier, trauma gets into the body. Like when you were talking about actually being able to smell stuff. Yeah. So for example, if sitting or lying in a certain position is actually making you very psychologically uncomfortable, um, then, you know, be scanning your body to see if that's happening. Uh, One type of meditation that a lot of people like, especially uh, clients that have had with trauma or anxiety is called a safe space. And you know, you do your deep breathing, but then you just go to an imaginary safe place in your mind and explore it for a while. And it can be any place. It can be your own living room. It can be outer space. It can be a beach. It, be, it could be a forest. As long as in this place, you absolutely believe that nothing could hurt you. And you just hang out there in your mind for a while.
2: Hmm. Okay. And
1: for a lot of people who really don't like traditional meditation, it's not stimulating enough for them, or it's not fighting the anxiety hard, right. Hard enough right now, than the safe space, it takes up a lot more attention. Right. So it can be easier for people to hold.
2: Okay. You know, I was, uh, yoga, yoga did some amazing things for me. And I know it sounds kind of silly, a grown man doing no, yoga, but, um, not at all. I, I, it's just the feel of yoga. I think it was, you know, cause we did it with music. Uh, we had the, of, of course the, the action, the of the you know the workout, but then we had the breathing exercises within that also, and it was just like a a very I guess a full body experience as far as like a, a meditational type state, like you're talking about like mindfulness. Um, mindfulness was very very preached upon uh, where I was at, and there was a lot of things. I mean, there was a lot of different therapies that we did. We did expressive therapy. Um, which was pretty much, you know, we, we made stuff or we draw, you know, or things like that to try to get a certain thought, you know what I mean? Out on paper, how we want it to be or, and music therapy, of course, they have the pet therapy and there's so many different types of stuff out there. Like you said, um, how do you see that? You know, I know that's not kind of going off of into the left here, but what about pet therapy and things like that? Have you noticed that, that those are these other techniques that they're starting to bring into this stuff, that there's anything working more than normal or more than something else. That's, that's kind of on the, the uptick, you know,
1: I don't know about more than anything else. Um, I mean, for one thing, yoga is completely legit. There's actually quite a few years of um, evidence that it is really good for trauma and kind of one of the biggest names in the field, a man named Bessel van der Kolk. I don't know if that name ever was brought up where you were, but, um, he's one of the biggest trauma researchers there is. And he's a big, big fan of yoga as part of treatment for PTSD. Uh, pet therapy can be useful in a couple of ways from what I've heard. I mean, definitely just being able to, you know, spend time with the dog, pet the dog as a way of calming yourself. But, um, for people whose trauma involves them having a lot of anger issues, the dog can actually get between them and other people. Right. In a way that can help stop, you know, a potentially escalating situation. Um, actually knew a guy who uh, had a dog who could do that. Um, personally, I'm a big fan of music therapy. It's a big go-to for me. Um, I've been experimenting for, for example, some people don't like just a whole sit down and listen to slow, relaxing music. Right. You know, if your energy levels are really high right now. So I've been playing around with the idea of playlists where maybe the first piece matches your current energy level and then the next couple pieces slowly bring it down to ease somebody into the more calming music
2: right that's pretty interesting that's kind of like the you know if we go back to the pet thing i mean that's like horses i know that horses are, are really really keen to emotion so yes. um I mean, there'd be states where I would we be aggravated or, or scared or something like that. And I'd go to, you know, be around the horse. And it's like the horse would sense that and just immediately go away. And then there's other occasions where I'm very calm. You know what I mean? Or I, 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 I can calm myself enough to be able to actually put my hands and place my hands on the horse. And it's like the horse is in a calm state. So it's almost like the horse forced me to calm down. And I could see what you're trying to go with with the music thing. Like matching the level and then involuntarily bringing it down because your mind gets toned into that musical cue. Right. And then it kind of like follows it down. So that's pretty interesting. That it is, that's an interesting approach.
1: The horse sort of acted as feedback for you about your own emotions. If the horse shied away from you, you knew that you were a little bit elevated. Is that mm-hmm. it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: And then you would know that you were calming down and that that was working when the horse allowed you to touch it. That's fascinating.
2: Yeah, it's like I actually put my hands on the horse and the breathing of the horse, you could feel the, you know, you could feel it and that's a calming effect in itself. And it's like, you can almost see the horse kind of, you know, bow its head a little bit like, okay, everything's okay. And then all of a sudden, if you start to get, you know, like say, uh, one of the most common signs for me is, is a heightened like awareness when it comes to, you know, looking around and always being hypervigilant. Uh-huh. I noticed if I started getting hypervigilant and looking around and see who's around me, then the horse would also perk up and look around like, okay, what's, where's the threat at? You know, like it actually tuned into my emotions. So it was very, uh, it was very being, uh, how should I say it? That's like oh, its own mindfulness. If you ask me.
1: It helps you be aware of where you're at. Yeah. It helps you learn to kind of read your own, uh, like physical and mental state.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any levels is there any levels of de- uh, depression or PTSD or any other type of mental disorders like, you know, sociopaths or anything like that, that uh, once they reach a certain level, the problem is permanently damaging to the brain or maybe emotional levels of a human being? I know that, P- like, for instance, I know that, you know, I've been diagnosed with severe PTSD and they you know, psychologists told me flat out PTSD for you is never going to go away. It's a daily, it's a daily upkeep of yourself now to make sure that um, you don't, you know, you don't go back down the rabbit hole that you once came out of and you're always going to be triggered. That's always going to be there. All you can do is really work through it. So I kind of believe, you know, that there's certain illnesses out there, but can you elaborate more on that for us? And if there's actually like, I, I mean, there's always hope, right?
1: Oh yeah. I would never, personally, I would never say to somebody that, this is never going away for sure cuz we just don't know that but right. you know i might say this is going to be a li- really long hard road and definitely you know people some people come in saying i want this to go away i want to stick with this till this completely goes away um others are like i just want to be able to live my life and i can accept that this will be a permanent part of things um but personally, at the level of research we have now and the level of clinical practice, I probably wouldn't go so far as to say this is definitely never going away. Just that it might take a whole lot of hard work. And therapy is very, very hard work and very, very scary.
2: Yeah, I, I equivalent that to being vulnerable and, and then the shame factor too.
1: Most definitely. Um, so at the biological level, the brain can almost sort of restructure itself and learn a disease. Um, when you've had symptoms long enough, the brain kind of adjusts itself to that being the new normal. Right. And trauma is something that's extreme enough that it can kind of carve itself, it can kind of carve itself right into the brain and make that whole process of the brain sort of learning how to be like that, um, go much, much faster. So the actual cells in the brain, the connections between cells, uh, get very, very strong in a way that supports you having that problem. And, uh, Part of, part of the long-term treatment would just be, you know, being able to behave and cope and think consistently in ways that'll slowly over time start to rewire the brain.
2: Does it, does, the, you think the brain does that for protection?
1: Oh yeah, your brain, as weird as it sounds, your brain is doing this to you because it wants you to be safe. It wants you to not be in those scary situations anymore. So, but you know, it's not a perfect system, so it sends people you know, all this pain and all this fear and all the other symptoms to try and keep it out of unsafe situations. It just goes kind of overboard with it.
2: Okay. And you said that, uh, you know, that there's, that the research now it's like, it's, it's not leading to where there's a possibility to where it's not going to ever get better. You're just saying that now research is pointing hopefully towards maybe a conclusion to these types of illnesses to where you can actually defeat it. Is that correct? in a a sense?
1: In theory, at least, it's always possible to get total symptom remission, as they say, as, as the technical term goes. But to get the person back to leading a fairly normal life, it might take a very, very long time. And it's not a straight road. It usually, for most people, involves a lot of backtracking, some relapses, sometimes of getting worse again a little bit before it gets better. So it's definitely, like I said earlier, a rough, jagged road. But, you know, in theory, if you kept at it, things should keep getting better and better. But like I said, that's not everybody's goal. Um, And part of dealing with an illness like that is figuring out how you're going to integrate the fact of having that problem into your life so you can still have a life that's satisfying to you, whether it ever completely goes away or not.
0: All right. That's good. That's good stuff that we're getting to right there for everybody. So for the people out there that have never been to a session... We've both been to countless sessions many, mm. many times. Yep. <laughs> um, but for somebody that's never been there or they're like, I don't want to go there and tell a stranger my feelings. I'm vulnerable. I got to hold this to myself. I got to protect myself. Could you possibly walk us through what a normal therapy session would be like? Or at least in your practice, how would this
1: Um, Like I said, it is totally reasonable to um, expect to talk to them with no commitment for 15 or 20 minutes so you can get to know them and ask them questions. Um, And then with the first session um, there is the boring paperwork phase of it. Usually (laughs) Um, a lot of that is legal paperwork over confidentiality and the insurance paperwork and stuff like that. Sometimes they can email you that ahead of time if you want to do that. And then you can spend more of the session kind of getting to know the therapist. Um, And then there's, pretty much always going to be a very long, maybe even more than one session thing called a clinical interview, which is where they ask a million questions about every aspect of uh, your illness, your personal history, your health history, um, other mental and physical problems that might run in your family, um, any substance abuse history. Um, let's see, what else that people should know? Just understand that as a basic ethical principle, Um, it's completely okay to be nervous. It's completely okay to worry about being stigmatized or shamed, but you should not feel that coming from the therapist. Um, A big, big part of their job is to help you feel comfortable and make you feel that this is going to be a safe space to talk about these things. So even aside from the details of what happens in the session, you should be getting more and more comfortable with that person. Like this is somebody you might be able to tell a lot of really personal things too.
2: I, I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, Going along the lines of what you were just talking about with, you know, how the, how the psychiatrists would make you kind of feel and not kind of lead you into things. Are there any warning signs out there for our viewers for any type of like bad therapy? You know, I wouldn't say bad therapist, but just bad approaches maybe, or Something that you might want to shy away from before you get in it too deep? Because I know that once you kind of commit, you know, cause I've been there before, once you commit to the therapist, it's like, all right, I'm all in now, you know, but it takes a minute to get there. And what kind of warning signs should we look for? So we're not getting too deep right away. We can kind of find another therapist. Cause I like to call it shopping around, you know what I mean? Because I want the best I can get for my money. No, no offense, but. No, um, I agree completely. Yeah.
1: I mean, one thing would be just like that initial phone interview kind of thing where you get to talk to them. Feel free to do a few. Like if you have, if you're lucky enough to find enough therapists that can take you and that can work with you, it's completely okay to talk to a few different ones and trust your gut, trust your feelings as to which one feels best. Uh, Therapy is like any other relationship. Sometimes you have to date quite a few people before you meet one you want to be with for a while. Um, In a weird sort of way, therapy can be the same that somebody can be a very good therapist and you can be doing everything right as their client and it's still not the right match. So um, just be aware that it's pretty normal, as you said, to shop around a little bit. It can be more convenient if you kind of do that with the uh, just by talking to them on the phone first. But like, if your gut says something's wrong, you should feel free to trust it. Um, the therapist should also be willing to respect your boundaries. Their job is often going to be to kind of push your boundaries gently, expand what you're doing. But, um, if something they're saying or doing makes no sense to you, or you feel like it's making you worse instead of better, um, like therapy itself might actually be becoming harmful, trust that. Um, and then just, since there are so many kinds of therapy that can work, it might be that the one they try first isn't the right one for you. Um, I love doing cognitive behavioral therapy because I love the logic. I love the idea of the thinking. I love the basic principle behind it, which is that even when you can't change the facts of your life, you can change how you think and feel about it. Yeah, Mm yeah. But that's really not for everybody. Um, So that's an example of where something that really works for a lot of people might not work for you, and that's not something that's wrong with you. But then just... Sometimes you just get a creepy feeling about somebody and you should be willing to trust it.
0: Like you, 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 everything's confidential, right? Between you and the client. You're not not obligated to anybody to say anything. Are you?
1: Um, the only time I'm obligated is when somebody is in real right now danger. If somebody's right now, suicidal, then I, that's something I have to report. Now, somebody just having suicidal ideas, but, They have no intention of doing it. That's something that can be worked on in therapy. But if they're in right now danger, that's something I have to report. Uh, If somebody is homicidal, that's something I have to report. Um, Child and elder abuse or abuse of a disabled person is something I have to report. And when I accepted a state license, that stopped being my decision. And by accepting a state license, I agreed that all of those things I would report. Um, so that's something important to know and that we talk about at the first session. Um, if if there's any legal involvement, like the courts are involved in any kind of way, um, it's important to know that only a judge's subpoena can force me to release information without your permission. Like somebody else's attorneys can't just send me a subpoena or a request for some paperwork. I can't reveal to them without your permission. But a judge could order that information, but even then, I usually have at least one chance to. Either write to the judge or go before him and say, Hey, I look at my, I think it might be damaging to my client, or I just don't think I have any information that can help you. And I request that you withdraw the subpoena. And then the judge can say, Okay, I withdraw it, or "Eh, I hear what you're saying, but I still want that information. And at that point, I have kind of have to give it to them.
0: See, that's a lot better than we have it here in the military because we have to see the, psychologists that they have here on base and they have like so much more obligations to the military. And it's not no judge subpoena. It's like our commanding officers. If they do the paperwork and stuff, they can get into our our record. And I believe that's why a lot of us in the military don't want to step up and talk because it's not as private as it is in the civilian sector. And it's so hard to be able to get referred out in town to a civilian Like you have to go through so much to even do it. And your psychologist on base has to be the one that vouches for you to do it. And even then it's difficult.
1: Yeah. And it's not like that in the civilian world. Like uh, your boss at work can't phone me and ask for information. I can't even admit that you exist as a client there without your permission.
2: Yeah, that's really good too. Um, So I got to, here's another, here's another good question that I was thinking about uh, earlier. Um, So as far as different types of therapy, right? Say you got a, a couple right now that is really struggling. You got a a male and a female and um, they're struggling as a couple, but they're also struggling because they're military family, say the the member has, you know, PTSD or something like that. Um, how do you tell the, the viewers out there how to pursue therapy? Is it a two pronged approach to go to marriage therapy and individual therapy at the same time or you know, because I've heard different, I've heard different things about it. Like myself, my own story. Um, I initially in 2011, uh, wanted to go to marriage therapy in Japan and, and it's a naval base. So these, you know, clinicians and psychologists are, are, uh, from the United States. They're, you know what I mean? They're licensed, uh, social workers and things like that. And, um, I go in there for therapy with my wife and we start you know crying together and the lady's like, she looks at me and she says, you know, she says, I don't need to see both of you right now. You know what I mean? I, I think that what's going on here is you need to go get help first and then come back to marriage therapy. Um, what do you think about that approach? Is that correct? Or, or should it be like the opposite where, where you, you kind of tackle the marriage? You know what I mean? And, and, and do that first and then kind of through that work on yourself or which what do you think is going to work best?
1: Um, I think what order you do it in or if you do it simultaneously should be a very individual decision. There's no hard and fast rule for that. The one big hard and fast rule is that somebody's individual therapist should never also be the marriage therapist. Like your individual therapist should be a private place that's just for you. And like I said before, even your spouse can't get any information out of it uh, without your permission. Whereas the marriage therapist is supposed to be about the two of you and the two therapists might consult with each other Make sure everybody's on the same page if you allow that. Um, So, yeah, I'd say the order in which it's done has to be a very personal decision. But just making sure that the marriage therapist is not also anybody's individual therapist.
2: And I've heard that. I've heard that. It's a very great point that you brought that up about talking about the marriage. Um, That was one. my psychologist told me that straight up off. I mean, the first statement out of the gate about marriage therapy said, hey, When you go do your research, talk to the psychologist, and the first question you should ask them is, who are you for? You know what I mean? Because if if they're for either or, if they're for the the husband or the wife, then that's the wrong therapist for you. They should be for the marriage in the middle. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly.
2: Okay. So uh, that's good points. And then I just want to put out to the viewers too, and I've had a hard time with this, Um, And I think that this is an issue with behavioral health is you go to get counseling, you get individual therapy right off the bat. You know what I mean? But then you try to go for marriage counseling and right away you're told you can't do that. We don't we we can't fund that right now because you're getting therapy by yourself. So it's kind of like a half approach to me, if that makes sense. And is there any hiccups like that out in the civilian world? I know you were talking about some stuff earlier. Is there anything like that, like insurance-wise? Or, or actually, can you attend different, multiple types of therapies?
1: Yeah, you can attend multiple types of therapies, um, typically not on the same day. Typically, you can only bill one session a day, and that's an insurance company decision. I'm not 100% sure of the rationale behind it. So you could absolutely do both marriage therapy and individual, but it would probably have to be on separate days.
2: Okay, but you could do the same I mean, you could you could technically do marriage and individual therapy at the same time, not the same day or whatever, but it's it's funded. Okay.
0: well, I know you have to get out of here in a little bit, Amy. So we'll just finish it up with um, is there anything you would like to address with our audience that could help them in bad times or anything last minute thoughts or anything for your uh, your practice or anything you'd like to put out for yourself?
1: So my website is um, called Audeo Therapy. Audeo is Latin for I dare because, you know, it takes some real courage to go to therapy. Um, so it's like www.audeotherapy.com And then I'm on Twitter at, um, at @audeotherapy Uh As far as other stuff I'd like to say, just really quick, there is a huge, huge mental health advocacy movement out there that's really worth checking out. Um, there are organizations like the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill and Mental Health America, but just online, there's tons of support. Um, I really like the one on Twitter. I know it's a mixed bag because people sometimes experience, you know, bullying about being open with their mental health, but then you've also got this huge, huge community around you to support you. And I have literally, like, let's not discuss me being on Twitter at two in the morning when I should be asleep, but um, I've been on Twitter at 2am. Somebody literally posts know, I feel really suicidal right now. I'm having a hard time. You know, next thing you know, you know, if they've been following enough people and been followed by enough people, they've got a whole community around them, coaching them through it, making suggestions, letting them know how valued and wanted and important they are, reminding them that the depressed thoughts or whatever thoughts aren't true, um, guiding them through the process of, you know, getting to the emergency room or calling the ambulance if that's the right decision in that situation. Um, so just be aware that both in person and online, there are actually a lot of resources for just being part of a community of people who are dealing with mental health issues.
2: I gotta hold on, I got one question. One last question. You ready? All right, Chicago style or New York style pizza, and why is it like that?
1: Chicago style, it's practically a religion.
2: <laughs> 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 <Hold on. laughs>
1: I mean, I like both. I'm never going to turn down a good pizza,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: but I have to stay loyal to my city and call out the Chicago style. And by the way, pineapple absolutely does belong on pizza.
2: Oh, <laughs> dang! She's she's high in the Hawaiians with that one. Oh uh-huh. man. <clears throat> well, thank well, thank you, Amy. It was really a, a pleasure talking to you. I'm sure that this information is definitely going to help. Hopefully countless amounts of people out there. Um, and I wanted to say thanks for, for putting your website out there. Um, so that way that, you know, and your Twitter stuff so they can have somewhere to go and, and hopefully follow you and, and get help that way too. Um, please push out, you know, push the info out, push our voice out there to your community as well. And, uh, I, I, I look forward to hearing great things, you know, once in a while, maybe we can rehash this conversation if there's some new stuff coming up that that's, that's really working. Uh, and Hey, it was, it was a blast. Thank you.
1: It was. Thanks for having me.
2: All right, Amy. You have a good night. Bye-bye.